just amazing to sit here and hear your stories about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and you to tell us things that they told you that the world yes. never heard before. Like, like I'm, I mean, I feel like I'm about to cry. <laughs> yeah, just, man. So I want, I want to get on to the Olympics. Um, so initially, um, the black athletes were boycotting, boycotting the 1968 Olympics, right? No. That's that's not right. Uh, we were. Let me say. Let me say this. I was at East Texas State first, and only communication I had with the guys at San Jose State was they had a magazine called Track and Field News. I used to go to get the magazine just to see where I stood relative to my competitors. Where I was I in, in, in terms of numbers. They had an article in there about the guys at San Jose State coming together to form this Olympic Project for Human Rights. So when I left to go to the Nationals in 65, I'm quite naturally, I'm going to go down to San Jose, check San Jose State out. This is where all the speech, speechsters are. So now when I get down there in San Jose, and then when I went out to San Jose, eventually after I went to that meeting with Dr. Edwards, and he said, well, man, it's possible we can get you uh, out to San Jose on a grant or something like that. I said, great. Told my wife about it. We decided it might be a good shot. So we left and we went to California. Now, when we start talking about potential boycott, and remember what I said, potential boycott, First thing we had to do was to educate ourselves as best we possibly could. In other words, if you're going to boycott, the first thing the media wants to know is why do you want to boycott? What do you think is so detrimental that you need to boycott? So based on all of the questions that would come to us, we came to the conclusion that we need to go and make sure that we was up to snuff. We had to go and research and study. And so we all went to the library. And we studied and studied and studied about race relations. We studied about what was happening in the city of San Jose. We studied about what was happening on the various colleges in terms of how black athletes was treated. We studied about the fact that we would get on an airplane and they got everybody's magazine on the plane but ours. We studied about when we went around the world to represent America, they never had any toiletries in there to represent blacks. You know, we didn't need, uh, you know, suntan lotion in our travel kit. You know, we didn't need a little uh, punicello hairdo, hair, hair, hair comb. We needed a pick or something like that. So we realized that they didn't have anything that represented black or blackness to represent them. In other words, we were just the old soul, just the extra guys on the trip. So now we have cause to go and do this research. And we became the to the understanding that we weren't researching anymore for ourselves as much as we were researching to make sure now that we can go out and educate as many of our peers as possible. Because I think when you sit back in retrospect now, I can sit back and say many of the individuals understood the necessity of boycotting and why it was necessary, necessary to consider boycotting. 
But it was difficult, man, for young individuals. Remember, everybody was in their in a early 20s right. to say, hey, man, here's something that you had been wanting to do since you was knee-high to a grasshopper. And all of a sudden, some guys going to come up and tell you, say, man, put that on ice. We prefer you to boycott the Olympic Games. You know, for me, it was no big deal because I've always looked at track and field as well as the Olympic Games or whatever. It's a track meet. That's all it is, a track meet. Somebody making money, and you're the show. Right. See, so, but a lot of other guys look at the, the Olympic like it's a save all. You know, like it's like the golden carrot that they have out in front of the donkey. That's why he keeps pulling the cart thinking he's going to get that golden carrot. <laughs> so they didn't feel like they was ready to give up their dream to go to the Olympic Games. In our retrospect now, you know, years later, we sit back. I'm sure the rest of them, we haven't had a discussion, but I know I've come to the conclusion that, hey, we just didn't have the right to ask those guys to make such a sacrifice. You know, uh, they didn't feel what we felt. I felt at that time at 23 years old, what I was doing wasn't for John Collins as much as it was for John Collins' kids and their peers and the kids, that their kids, okay? But a lot of those individuals say, man, this is for me. I trained for this. I promised my kids I was going to do this. My church is counting on me. My community is counting on me. And then here we come out of nowhere and tell them, say, man, we want you all to boycott the Olympic Games. Right. But that doesn't erase the fact that the valid reasons the valid understanding that we had to say when we had to bring light to the ills of society. And we can do it through this Olympic movement. We can step back, man. We ain't got to shoot nobody. We ain't got to kill nobody. We ain't got to maim nobody. All we got to do is just say, we're going to take a step back. Just like if the, if the black soldiers would have took a step back from the, the first war, first world war, I don't think we'd be as popular, or the Second World War, or the Korean War, or even getting us when we was on the Civil War. If we didn't take part, I don't think America would be as great as it is today. They didn't know what our worth would be until we took our step back from the Olympic Games and say we choose not to go. And that goes back to what I originally started talking to you guys about, choice. Mm -hmm. We choose not to go. Maybe if we chose not to go, then you might understand that, hey, man, we don't just need you guys when the house is on fire to come call us and want a buddy up with us to help you put the fire out. And then once the fire is gone, then I can't even sit in your house. I got to get back out in the snow. Exactly. You understand? So it was our job to educate them. Mm -hmm. But we didn't have no right to tell any of them that you must boycott these games. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Like, what what kind of role did they try to have um, Jesse Owens play in, like, deterring you guys from from uh, boycotting? Well, Jesse was put in a, a very challenging situation. Okay, Jesse Owens ran in two Olympic games. Jesse ran in nineteen thirty two Olympics. A lot of people don't know that. But he ran the 1932 Olympics, then he came back and he ran the 1936 Olympics. Now, imagine how bad race relations were in America in 1968. Mm -hmm. 
Then take that race relation and take it back to 1936 and think of how much it was compounded at that time. Yes. So when Jesse came home from the games, remember, Jesse ran, won everything, did everything, defied the Nazi right, the whole nine yards. But because when Jesse left to go to the games, Jesse had just gotten married. He and Rachel had just gotten married. Rachel didn't go to the game with him. She stayed home. He went to the game, broke all the records, defied Hitler the whole nine yards. Jesse was a good colored man or Negro by doing what he did. But when Jesse turned into a nigger is when Jesse defied Avery Bryant and told Avery Bryant, he said, man, I'm going back home. I don't want to go to Europe and run no track meets. I miss my wife. We just got married. I want to go to my wife. And Avery Bryant didn't want me to go home. Avery Bryant said, no, we need you on this tour. And Jesse said, well, I'm going home. And Avery Bryant told Jesse, said, if you go home, you'll never run in America again. Mm. Jesse went home. He did run in America again. But he ran in America a little differently than he ran in the, before the games. Because when he ran in America, the next time he ran in America, running against horses in order to feed his family. That's the power they put on one of the most righteous athletes that we had. Maybe because he was a black man and say, I choose to go home to my wife that I had just married. I miss dearly. I don't want to go on no tour. I'm tired. Are you going to defy me? We'll see that you never run again. So now they go get Jesse 30 some odd years later. And why did they go get him? Because the power of the beast says time to bring Jesse out. So we're talking about black power. We're talking black consciousness. We're talking about boycott, black boycott, you might say. Oh, man, we got to get somebody to defy them. They always seem to go find a Charles Barkley or somebody. <laughs> okay. So now they go get Jesse and they put Jesse in a suit, put some money in his pocket, and they give him a script. Read the script. But when Jesse's reading the script to himself, Jesse said, I'm not concerned about this script that you want me to read. I'm more concerned about these young individuals don't realize what situation they're putting themselves in. Okay? See, because remember, Jesse's mind is in 1936, 1932. He know how cold and callous they could be, far greater than we thought we knew. Okay? So he came in with the thought, yeah, I can pick this money up, and I can save these people from hurting themselves as well. But Jesse took abuse. He took abuse by a lot of the athletes that was on the team that didn't particularly understand what Jesse was doing or why he was doing it or how he was doing it. You know, he had to be called Uncle Tom. He had to be called this and that by others, you know. And I remember just before Jesse died, I was living in Pasadena. And uh, we was down there for the Rose Bowl. And I remember I walked into the tent must have been on a rainy day. It was a, a real damp night, like misting, cold, real wet, damp out. And I walked into the tent, and Jesse was in that tent. And he got snot running out of his nose, man. And you can see he's shaking. 
So I said to him, I said, Jesse, did they get you some coffee, man, or some hot soup or something? He said, John, I've been asking them for it. They tell me they're going to get it, but they ain't, they ain't bought it here yet. So, you know, I, after a while, it didn't take me long to get pissed off. So I turned around, I turned the volume up. What the hell's going on here? Well, Jesse don't have any soup or coffee. How come y'all don't have a blanket for him? Well, they went and get all this stuff. And then when he got it, and I'm turning to talk to somebody, when I turned back around, Jesse had tears in his eyes. And I looked at him, I said, Jesse, what's the matter? He said, man, you know, I thought all this time, man, that you guys were wrong. He said, I found out that you were right, man, and I was wrong. I said, what are you talking about, Jesse? He said, he said I'm talking about Mexico. He said, man, I came there because I didn't want them to do to you what I know they're capable of doing. He said, but in the meantime, they made me think that I was doing the right thing for them. He said, I thought that they cared enough about me that I could make a difference. He said, man, they didn't care about me. They just used me. They used me to get to you guys. And I said to him, I said, Jesse, I said, let me tell you something, man. Don't have no shame in your game. I said, let me tell you this. I said, man, in 1936, if I had attempted to do anything like that, I would have probably died right there in the stadium or died before I got to the stadium. You knew exactly what the flavor was then, and you know what the flavor is now, because that was a volatile situation. A lot of students had lost their lives before we even got to Mexico City. Okay? So I told him, I said, Jesse, don't have no shame in your game. I love you for who you are. I love you for the fact that you protected me. I said, but yet and still I remember when you was running against them horses, ain't no black face throw you 50 cent to help feed you or your kids. And it's the truth. I know they didn't see him throw them nothing because anybody throw me nothing. I got some money years later from a very good friend of mine that was in those games with me. But Bill Cosby never threw nothing. Oprah Winfrey never knew threw nothing. Bob Johnson never threw nothing. All those individuals came alive based on that demonstration that I did in Mexico City. Which I want, I want, man. I want almost speechless now. I want to, I want to get to the to the to that day, that day of that famous picture that that we all know with with you and Tommy Smith and Peter Norman standing on that podium. Were was it a uh, um, was it something you all had planned to do if, if you won, or was that a spur of the moment decision um, to get on that podium with the fist? And then also, I want you to explain really all the things you all had on and what, what, what it meant. Because people just think you were just up there with your shoes off and, and put a black fist, but you actually had, it was a lot more to it. Can you take us to that moment when you all won and, you know, was it planned and explain the outfit? Well, the plan, like I stated, overall, the overall plan was that we were going to come together as one in, in the sense of a boycott. That fell through. But I think the last thing that was said amongst the athletes was everyone would do their own thing, whatever that is. You do your own thing. I run the quarter semi and just having Tommy was in that quarter semi with me. And when it was done, I said to Tommy, that was the quarter semi just before the final race. I said to Tommy, I said, listen, man, I'm disenchanted with the fact that the boycott was called off. I want to make a statement. 
What's your take on that? He said, I'm with you. When he said he was with me, man, I can tell you, man, it's like my soul was inside my body doing slam dunks because he said he was with me. And the reason why I was doing that is because I felt in order to make a statement like that, it had to be more than one person. It couldn't just be that one person. So when he said he would do it, man, I can't tell you how I felt. But even greater than that, another feeling came over me instantaneously. And, and that feeling was to give him that race because the race meant everything to him and it didn't mean shit to me. <laughs> he lived off of medals and trophies and I live off of memories. You know, I didn't need no medals to know who I was as an athlete on, on the field. But the fact that he said that he was with me, but I had to go justify this. So when we got done, I went over to the practice track where our coach was, uh, Bud Winters. And I remember telling Bud, I said, Bud, man, I got a, I got a dilemma. He said, you got a dilemma? What's that? I said, man, I want to give Tommy this race. I said, but I don't want this dude to think I'm no punk. And, and Bud looked at me and he smiled. He said, well, John, you've always been your own man, and you're going to do what you feel is the right thing to do. So when he said that, he didn't need to say no more. He just sealed a cake for me, so to speak, put the ice on the cake when he said that. Because I had always been my own man. And he said, do this. You're going to do what you're going to do anyway. So now I get back. That's what I got to call my partner. So I called some of my partners. And I told him, I said, don't. Don't bet no money on this race. I'm undecided what I'm going to do. Don't bet no money on this race. And what happened was I decided, well, what I'm going to do, I'm going to set a precedent in the race. So when Tommy agreed, before I broke camp with him to go over and see the coach, we started talking. I said to him, I said, well, what artifacts you had to bring to the table? He said he had some gloves. I said, bring them. I had beads, bring them. He had a black scarf, bring them. I had a black shirt to cover up my jersey, bring them. We were wearing black socks already. And then at the same time, I took the Puma shoe out there and had him take his out there for the simple reason that when I was a kid in high school, I was working for Puma. Puma didn't even know who I was as a track athlete. I'm just a black kid working in the warehouse. Okay. I said, but at the same time, I realized that Puma was loyal to the black kids, whereas Adidas, because there was only Adidas out there in Puma. Commerce, Converse was for basketball. So when it came to me to go to Adidas people and ask them for a pair of shoes, they'd tell you, you ain't nobody, man. We give the shoes to the stars. So I said, whatever I do when at victory stand, I'm going to take that Puma shoe out there with me. So you asked me to break it down in terms of what the glove signified. I'm going to tell you about this, and I'm going to give you an explanation as to why. You sit back, you think about blackness. This is what run through my head a long time before we got to the point where Tommy said he had those gloves. But when you sit back and you think about blackness, from our perspective, the white man tell us, Black Monday was a bad day. That's when the stock market crashed. Or they blackballed you, Earl. 
or devil's, devil's cake, Earl. You understand? Anything black that they describe to you, around you, with your kids, it was a negative. Okay? So almost like they took the glove and they pulled it inside out. But then I got to thinking, this is back in the 70s, I'm thinking this. I'm saying, well, you know, they're telling me everything black is a negative. But let's start looking at the positives about black, what they don't want you to even consider. And that is the first one, and you go to martial arts, and you get involved in judo, taekwondo, taekwondo, and all that. What's the highest belt that you're looking for? Black belt. The black belt. Why didn't they name it the white belt? It's funny. The, it's funny. the white belt is the actual weakest belt to get. It's the That's first. right. And the black <laughs> is the strongest, right? Yep. Okay. Let's flip the page. It's okay. When you go to the court system, what do you see when you walk in the court? Black robe. You see the black robe. You see the black robe before you know whether it's a man in the robe, whether it's an Asian man, a black man, a white man. You don't know who it is, a little boy, a little girl. All you know is the power and the radiance of that black robe. Right. They got the black robe on because it shows strength, it shows power, and it shows wisdom. Okay? Let's slip over again. Let's say there's two symbols in America. What are the two symbols of America? The two symbols? Yeah. The flag? The flag is one. And uh, um, Statue of Liberty? Bald Eagle. Bald Eagle. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay? Now, look at Rare breed. Bald Eagle, they got him, man, because he's the biggest, the strongest, the most fed, the most eloquent bird in the sky. Yeah. The blackest bird in the sky is that eagle. He just happened to get a bonus with them and get a white head. They said, we well, know he's going to be the symbol now. We got him because of his black beauty and strength and grace. But he got a white head, symbol of America. Okay? Let's go over again. Let's flip the page one more time. When they say when America's in default economically, they say we're in the what? Black. In the red. Oh, you're in the red when you're losing money. When you're making money, you're in the black. So, in other words, they tell you everything to make you think that you're negative because you're black or you're black skin. You understand? But they look at you from the other side that everything black constitutes is pure and strength and right. I tell anybody, you go outside and tell your, your, your kids, say, son, go outside at 8 o'clock in the morning and look up in the sky and tell me what you see. And then when you come back, you tell them, say, all right, son, tell me what you see. Well, I saw the sky, daddy, and saw the blue sky, I saw the sun, huh? cloud looked like it was up there. Okay, son, 15 hours from now, go look out the door again. Tell me what you see. And then when they start turning, you have to tell them, say, son, let me just say this to you. There's a difference in the two things you saw. And the difference is when you looked out your window in the morning, out that door in the morning, you saw a portrait. When you went back there 15 hours later, you saw a movie in the blackness. You understand? Mm. A picture, motion. And that's what night brings. You're the spirit of the universe. You're the soul of the universe. Blackness is. But they teach you so much a negative. So when Tommy say he had the gloves, I'm saying it's great that the gloves are there. It's almost like God orchestrated all this because this was the first time 
that the Olympic Games ever televised in Technicolor. This was the first time the Olympics was ever televised in Technicolor and being shown around the world. First time for both. Okay? So imagine this. Think about this. We got the glove because we got Technicolor. We got the glove because now it's universal. Everybody going to see this glove. But before there's a fist, there's what? Open hand. <laughs> These are five people of color. Okay? And out of the five people there, one of them say, you know something, man, if we can take this this uh little pebble here and roll it on the other side of the road, we can make a tremendous advancement for humanity. And he jumps down, man, he tries and get it over there, he's pushing, he's pulling, he's doing everything, and he can't do it. And the second one tells him, man, I saw what you did, man. You, you ain't got to put your hips into it. And he jumped down the hill on there for another day, and he can't do it. But by the time the third man come up, they all and woke up and realized, say, you know, if we come together, we come together, man, we can move a mountain, much more a pimple or a pebble, because now we have come together in unity. You understand? You're stronger in numbers than you ever will be by yourself. You understand? They didn't want black people to see this in terms of blackness coming together to be that power base. You think about this for 53 years. They didn't do all kinds of movies and shit. Why are they still vacillating back and forth by doing this movie? Because the movie will be too revealing as to truths. Okay? Remember, Five separate individuals can't do shit separately. Mm-hmm. But when they came together, it, 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 contrary to this, think about this damn election that they just had down here in Georgia. You understand? When black people came together on that same issue, man, there was a very powerful base, wasn't they? Mm-hmm. When the NBA decided to say, man, we're going to support Kaepernick. And they became a very powerful base when they came together. So the glove is there. The second thing was I had the beads on. Why did I have the beads on? I had the beads on because I wanted to illustrate the lynchings that had taken place, the murders that have been taking place throughout our history. Okay? Think about individuals that have been lynched or individuals that sharecroppers and they just slaughtered down there in, 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 in uh, Arkansas, or the people they slaughtered down there in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And then think about the fact that not near one person served a day in jail for any of those atrocities that taking place that I just mentioned. Not one person has taken place a, a day in jail, a half an hour in jail for all the lynchings that have taken place throughout the South. Lynchings that has taken place to this present day when nobody's serving time. Okay, so those beads was very necessary for the lynching. Tommy had a black scarf on his neck. Tommy's black scarf was supposed to be representing black pride, pride in our race and who we are. Okay. Then you sit back and say, well, you know, uh, Tommy and Peter Norman, they were dressed in, they were in protocol. 
When they looked at me, they said, well, Carlos is out of protocol. Why was I out of protocol? Can you tell me? You wanted to make a statement? No, I was out of pro protocol based on my dress. And remember, they were zipped up. Your mushroom was wide open, right? Right. There's two reasons for that. The first one, I wanted them to let them know that I had that black shirt on top of my USA jersey. And the guy said, well, why did you have a black shirt to come up your USA jersey? I said to him, I said, well, that was the purpose of me having my jacket open. I said, because I was representing the blue-collar workers, like my mother and father, that never get any credit for building this country and making this country run the way it run. So that's why I was dressed out of context like the rest of them. I said, now you ask me why did I come up to USA jersey? That's very simple. I covered up the jersey because I was ashamed of America. Now here I am, America's son, telling me, telling the world, I'm ashamed of America because America could have done so much better and chose not to. See, I have a right. I have the choice to be ashamed, and that's what I chose to exemplify. I was ashamed of America than to brag about I'm representing America. How are you going to represent something that don't represent you? Wow. Right? And then the shoes, if we went out there barefoot, we went out there barefoot to let them know that here we sending rocket ships to the moon and land a half mile from where they said they're going to land, but they tell me they can't kill poverty or they kill, can't kill rats and roaches. They can't kill the disease that's running rampant through our communities. They can't put shoes on people's feet, but yet still we can send a spaceship to the moon. This is bullshit. So all of those symbols right there, they would not let them be exposed to the general public for them to be able to try and figure these things out themselves. I know one thing. Puma need to give you an uh, endorsement deal. You took them shoes. No, no. Listen, they gave the endorsement deal to Mr. Smith because Mr. Smith had a better life for him. Wow. Okay? See, when, when I left in New York... I took and put all the guys at San Jose State. I put all of them in Puma shoes. I took that Puma shoe and put it out on the victory stand. Mr. Smith went there and sold him a bill of goods. And Puma called me up about two weeks ago, maybe a month, a month now, talking about they want to do something. And I talked to the dude so straight and so forward until they running for me. I told him, I said, man, let me just tell y'all, I don't need y'all. I ain't never needed Puma. I said, man, I ran in your product because I thought you had the best product. I appreciated the loyalty that you had to me, but it doesn't appear that Puma appreciated any loyalty that I had to you. I said, when I broke the world record, I broke the world record wearing your shoe. When they didn't let me have credit for the world record, I didn't see you jump up and raising the hell about a fight to see that I got my world record or to see that you got your shoes approved. I said, I sacrificed that shit for you. I said, so if you think that I owe you anything and I'm humble and happy you calling me, man, when you come to me, just make sure you bring it to me right. Go back and tell your superiors that. Or don't come knocking on my door. Wow. So, so take, take me to, to that moment after you all made that iconic stand on, on, on the podium when you learned that they were kicking you all out the Olympics and sending you back home. Well, man, it was interesting. Uh, you know, if you think about it, 
We stayed in the village probably the first three days. After that first three days, man, we stayed at the same hotel where all the Olympic officials stayed. There's a hotel in Mexico City called Hotel Diplomatica. Okay? All the heavyweight officials stayed there. Mr. Smith and I stayed there as well. We went back to the Olympic Village the night before the race just to make the coaches feel comfortable. Okay? And the reason I'm saying we was at the hotel is because we were married. My wife couldn't stay in the village. And I'm not going to let my wife stay in the hotel when I should be in the hotel with her. So when we went back the next day, it was a lot of courtesy to the coaches that we were there the night before the race. Now, when the race go off, when we run and do our thing, and we get on the victory stand, and, you know, after we had run the race, man, my attitude was like, all fire. Now, let's get busy. Let's do what I came here to do. I was excited. Because, remember, whatever we did at that quarter semi, all that shit was for naught if we didn't be one of the top three finishers in the race. If you go back and you look at the race, just like I told my partners, don't make no bets because I was undecided how I was going to run that race. If you look, coming off the turn, I had seven meters on everybody. And then all of a sudden, you see me pull back and turn around and tell Mr. Smith, if you want this medal, stop bullshitting and come on. Okay? And you see me slowing down, striding in the race for like 75, 80 meters. I'm just striding. I'm not running. And then 10 meters from the tape, you see me look all the way from my left, all the way over to my right at Peter Norman because I've been so concerned about Tommy because Tommy wanted this medal so bad until he fabricated a growing muscle pull. You ever had a grand muscle pull? Yeah. No. Uh, when you had a grand muscle pull, were you able to go and do what you was doing the day before you pull it? Or, no, sir. Huh? No, sir. Okay. No, sir. So I mean, when he did this, but this grand muscle pull, and I trained with the dude every day. It just showed me how much he wanted this thing. And where I alluded to you, when I went to the coach and told the coach, I don't want this dude to think that I'm no punk because I'm giving him this race. When he threw his hands up on me in that race, when we was going through the finish, he threw his hands up. Man, I could have cut his legs out from under. <laughs> I could have cut it because that's exactly what it made me feel like. He put it up like, oh, he just whipped my ass so easily. Right? So I said, let me let it go. But the bottom line is now we done got through with that. And now, when I got on the victory stand, man, the first thing that I thought about, which I didn't tell you guys in the interim, was about a vision that I had when I was like seven, eight years old, where whoever the policy of the university showed me that demonstration. Only difference is they showed me the demonstration as a seven or eight-year-old child. In this vision, I'm in a grass field, and I take it that I was in a stadium I couldn't never see the people, but I could hear all the people. And I'm standing on a box by myself in this grass field. And all the people out there just applauding their yippee-ki-yay with excitement. And it took a minute for it to dawn on me that they was applauding for me because there wasn't nobody out there but me. 
And I'm right-handed. I tell my man, I lay a lot of guys down with his right hand. But in this vision, I go to wave to the people with my left hand. And, you know, and in my left hand, man, if any kid, if you go in the race because the people are applauding something that you did, you always take the attitude that, man, I feel good. They applauding for me. You will raise your hand. Now that you will raise your arm, and you're going to get up on your toes because you want everybody to see you. And just as I got my hand where you saw it in the picture of 1968, it froze in time. And people ask me, say, well, why did it freeze? I said, because all of the happiness is like somebody snapped their finger or hit a light switch, and all the happiness turned to anger and venom, name calling, spitting at me, telling me where to go, calling me all kinds of names. Man, that scared me so bad. That vision went that morning. I was shook up all that day until we went to dinner last, that night, about 5, 36 o'clock that night. And my father could see something was wrong. He said, Johnny, what's the matter? I guess he could see I was distraught. I said, Daddy, I was in a movie. He said, you was in a movie? I said, yeah, Daddy, I was in a movie. He said, what happened? I said, everybody was happy about something I did, Daddy. And then they got mad at me, and they started throwing things at me and calling me names and spitting at me. And I'll never forget, we was at a little dinner table. My, my mother, my brothers, myself. And I remember my father brought me into his ribcage, and he said to me, he said, son, nobody's going to bother you. He said, my job is to love you, feed you, house you, protect you, and see that you get a good education. Nobody's going to bother you. And I remember he looked over my head and he said to my mother, he said, Vi, it looked like God's got something in mind for this kid, something special in mind for this kid. We're going to have to wait. Next time I thought about that vision, <clears throat> when we was on that victory stand. Wow. And if you, look at, <clears throat> if you look at the picture on the victory stand, and you see Mr. Smith is tensed. He tensed his all oh, get up. You look at me. Man, it look like I'm sitting in the park on, on the park bench. I'm relaxed. And you can see my eyes open. You can see the look on my eyes like, like what was going through my mind. What was going through my mind is, oh, shit, this is what that movie was about. That's, right. That's exactly what went through my mind. So, like, then I thought about my father tell me stories about when he was in the First World War and the whole nine yards. And by the time we got down from the victory stand, we was running through my body, man, like like water flushing down like a, a, a waterfall through my body. And what the sentiment was, man, they could never, ever put shackles in on John Collins' brain on his body ever again in life. I'm a free man. They could never shackle me, brother. And that's the way I carry myself from that day to the day. Is that is that um it's doesn't don't they call it like the fist of freedom or something like that? Didn't it get nicknamed that? They, I think no, I think they that was a, a movie that they did. The HBO did a, a fist of freedom was a, a, a documentary they did years ago. Okay. Um, I want to ask you a question. So the backlash, um okay. after everything happened, what when I say this name, tell me what comes to mind about this person. Brent okay. Musburger. Shit. <laughs> oh, you, you, say, you say say a word, so I'm giving you a word. Right. <laughs> Tell us about Brent Musburger. Okay. Uh, Brent Musburger was a young white guy. Uh, 
I don't know in Musburg. I don't know where that come from. Is with his uh, ethnicity is, but he's a young white guy that was just getting started in the broadcasting system, and he took advantage of what the spectacle was. The spectacle was three young individuals, two black, one white, making a statement to society. He chose to look at us and call us black stormtroopers. So in other words, what he was saying, we were black, like black neo-Nazi stormtroopers. Okay. So, okay, he does this. And mind you now, people are saying, well, you know, Brent, he did this, this. No, nah, man, he was rewarded by calling us those words. They rewarded him and shot him up to the highest level for sports commentators. Okay. Merely because he chose to call us black stormtroopers, they gave him the promotion and put him up there. Now, I'm show you how things go, you know, relative to Mr. Smith, how his, his mind is, why, you know, we was never on the same plane. We made a statement together, but it's a damn shame that we were never together as one as I thought at one time. Uh, Mr. Musburger, I was on a show, uh, I guess it's been my maybe three months, four months now, maybe six months, I don't know, on the uh, CNN with Frederica Whitfield. It was uh, myself, Herb Douglas, and uh, what's the guy's name that does all this ABC stuff now? Uh, the heck is his name? What's the guy that does all the ABC uh, stuff uh, for uh, the Olympics? The heck is his name? Bob Costas. Oh, okay. Bob Costas. So Bob Costas is there on the show, the three of us on the show, and we have some discussion. So they started talking about Brent Musburger. So I told him about Brent Musburger ain't this, ain't that, and then he never apologized to me. So so uh, Bob Costas said, well, he did apologize. I said, no, nah, he ain't apologizing to me. So then Wami Tyus, his husband, Wami Tyus is like my sister and her husband, real good friend, and he got this article where he said Brent Merzberger did apologize. But then I put the math together. Brent Musburger is a, is a color commentator for the Oakland Raiders. Tommy Smith is indirectly associated with the Oakland Raider organization. So with, in turn, Brent Musburger went and apologized to Tommy Smith. He never picked the phone up to call me to tell me he apologized to me. He apologized to Tommy. But even greater than that, to show you, I'll tell you, Tommy and I ain't never been on the same page. If Brent Musburger would have come to me and did that to me, I would have told Brent Musburger, said, man, you can't come to me and apologize to me. If you're going to apologize, you need to make a public apology. And the public apology has to be to Mr. Smith and Mr. Carlos. Yes. You understand? Yes. So Brent made this apology to him, however big or small, but it never circled back to me. So he never gave me an apology whatsoever. But I think that the apology came about based on the fact that they both of them work for the same organization. So Brent, Brent Musburger is a dude that I say uh, just got a chance, as so many others, to ride off of what took place in Mexico City. Okay. So let me ask you this. Um, after after you all were after you made the stand and they, they 
put you guys out the Olympics. You came back home and I, and I saw one of the videos. You was pissed. I, I seen, you know, you tell him get get that camera out my face and all that. The anger you had, right and rightfully so. But for many years, it, it, it affected you as far as getting a job and being able to pro provide for your family and things. Is that correct? Absolutely. So I, I heard you. I'm a, I'm a, a we both are dedicated listeners to um, to uh, Joe Madison in the mornings. And I heard you on, on his show before. Black Eagle. The Black Eagle. Yes, <laughs> I love him. Yes. Um, but. When I was, you know, I heard you talking about this on there, and he always talks about the difference between um, a sacrifice and, I mean, a, a, a moment in the movement is sacrifice, and you sacrificed for the movement. And do you, and, and I feel like a lot of people like yourself that you know you you sacrificed many years of being able to provide for your family and probably a lot of years of frustration and anger, and I, I believe you said even contributed to your first marriage ending, right? Right. So how do you feel, you know, to, you know, you being somebody that, that pretty much sacrificed your life for us? And how do you feel? Do you feel that that sacrifice was worth it in the end, being that, that we, in a lot of ways, we are still fighting some of the same things that you sacrificed for 50, what was that, 53 years ago or so? You know, some man, that, 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 point that you're making right now has been on my mind, man, for the last 30 days, I would say. And when I say on my mind, I mean heavily on my mind, just what you're talking about. And, you know, I was just sitting up in my, in my living room upstairs today thinking about a conclusion to that thought process that I had going through my brain for that 30 days. And I've come to the conclusion, man, that where I feel, I'm sure at some point, Harriet Tubman felt that way. I'm sure Nat Turner felt that way. Marcus Garvey, Paul Robeson, you know, Booker T. Washington, all of them felt that way. You understand? The boys, same way. Muhammad Ali, Jack Johnson, because we have to take into account, man, that we love our race immensely. But at the same time, we realize, or we don't realize this, how immense the obstacles for our race have to endure. Not on a 24-hour basis, but a 48-hour day basis. In terms of trying to find out who we are as a people trying to have identity in this, this life that we have, trying to survive the tricks and the games they apply to us on a daily basis. Trying to come to grips with, am I a man? Because I can't do manly things. So that refreshes my mind and make me have an understanding as to why individuals such as I just mentioned have become very lonely, lonely soldiers in this war. The Rosa Parks. You know, each and every one of these people that I mentioned, man, they they are very lonely individuals. 
because first of all, you, you, you don't get invited to the big NAACP awards dinner. You don't get invited to many of the black cultural activities that they have. And then at the same time, we as a race of people don't realize that we are caught up in the same shit that we fighting against with white folks. And that's classism. We have classism amongst ourselves so embedded so deeply until it's difficult for me to say I would give up on my people as a result of me knowing what my people was going through every day. On the outside of that, yes, you feel hurt. You feel like, hey, man, I, I, I feel like, you know, we're in a, in a race and, and I'm a snail and I'm running against a greyhound dog. That's the, the snail's pace is how we as a race of people, black people moving in this big overall game that we have. And the guy that I'm in competition with to get to the finish line is a greyhound dog where his thing is about running every day, 24 seven. We can't even get the damn snail on the track because we ain't together to even get up on the track. We feuding back and forth with so much in between shit. Mm. You understand? Yeah. I mean, I thought all this came to me in this last 30 days. And but I say, man, if I had to do it again and again and again, I would go no other way but to the, this way. To just to let them know that everybody is looking for answers. And why are they looking for answers? Because the answers that's there, they have people just as quick as you trying to find it, they're trying to bury it. Understand? But for those individuals that look long enough, they're going to see a certain individuals, man, that just didn't know anything about quit. You know, they don't know nothing about give up. They don't know nothing about, oh, throw your hands up. And don't think that white folks didn't come to me and go out to Harry and the rest of them and told them, say, hey, listen, I don't know why you're doing this for your people because they don't give a shit. And then for them to tell you they don't give a shit and you see signs of them not giving a shit. Understand? But you got to walk on by that and understand why they don't give a shit. You sit back and you think about when I talk about classism. We as black people, man, have a tendency to dislike what white folks do, but at the same time, stumbling over the fact that we're trying to do it better than them. Mm. When I say trying to do it better, then we don't like their classism bullshit, and then we look and say, we got more classism than they do. And we don't even realize, based on this classism shit that we have, it sets us back so far. And when I say sets us back to them for the instance of this, we have let them dictate to our children and tell our children, your mom ain't shit because she ain't Oprah Winfrey. Your brother ain't shit because he ain't Jay-Z and, and Beyonce. You understand? Yo, 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 yo magazine ain't shit because you ain't Bob Johnson. Okay, and who are these individuals I mentioned? Yeah, you, you ain't shit because you ain't uh, 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 Kanye West. 
All of these individuals that I mentioned are billionaires. Let's take five more black billionaires and put it. Now we got 10 billionaires, black. But see, the bottom line is they don't realize through this sex, this separatist shit that we have, because of whether you was a gangbanger or whether you was a state senator, whether you were a straight person or whether you were a gay person, whether you was a bank president or whether you was a dog in the street. Black is black. I give a shit whether you going that's right. Whether you going to the Catholic Church or, or the Baptist Church or you ain't going to no church. Black is black. Yes. And then when I tell myself, listen, man, here, take this, if you say about, well, I take about classes and when those heroes that you women look at, like, I should be excited about Oprah Winfrey because she's a billionaire. She's a billionaire because they allowed her to be a billionaire. Ooh. Okay? And when they allowed her to be a billionaire, hell, billions of y'all back from being that billionaire. And it's what I understand. I said, I want to tell you what. Go to any beach in America or any beach in the world. I say, well, understand and reach down and pick up 10 grains of sand. And each one of the 10 grains of sand, I say, it's Oprah, Beyonce, Jay-Z, Kanye, Bob Johnson. And then you take that hand and close that hand and you walk off of the beach. And you look back in your hand and you see that 10 grains of sand. And then look out on the beach where you just left, where you picked them grains up and realize that all of that is white billionaires out there. Mm. So if you think that they think that they're any better than you because they're a billionaire, they billion dollars don't do nothing but put them in the same bracket that we're in because we don't never have what they have because we ain't never been united to have anything like that what they have. But we idolize them because they made the money. But yet, and still, they want to act like they don't go through the same things we go through. Yeah, they get the same dirty looks we get. Mm -hmm. They walk through the department stores and get followed. Mm -hmm. Just like when Orphan went to England. Yes. Went to buy the purse. Woman, well, I ain't taking that purse now. Who are you? you? You can't afford that. Okay? So, regardless of whether they try and act like they're in a different zone or a different slot, they have not come to the realization that black is black no matter what until we get serious about this circumstance that we're in to deal with it on a very serious mathematical equation. Solve the equation. You understand? Yes. Sit back, you sit back, you say, hey, we talk about black, black lives matter. Now, I'm going to tell you something. In 1968, we had a platform, Olympic Project for Human Rights. Olympic Project for Human Rights. What we tried to do, we tried to arouse humanity at that time to tell humanity that this is something that each and everyone has a stake in this. But what did the powers to be in America? They flipped the script. And they said, this is not Olympic Project for Human Rights. This is black power movement. That's what they tell everybody. It's a black power movement. It's not. So black power don't mean that humanity is going to wrap their arms around black power. Okay? 
So now here we come 53 years later, and Mr. Floyd loses his life along with others, and then Black Lives Matter come to be in. Well, what rose Black, Black Lives Matter up? You think it was Floyd's life that rose them up? It wasn't Floyd's life that rose them up. It was humanity that rose them up. Because when I say humanity rose them up, think about in 1968, I made one statement that went around the world. Understand? Reaching out to humanity, but reaching out with humanity that didn't change the tag slide and say, Black Power opposed to a Olympic Project for Humanity. Understand? But with the Black Lives Matter, it was humanity was wrapped around them from head to toe around the world. You saw with Black Lives Matter in Paris, in Poland, in Russia, Puerto Rico. Everywhere you look, they had the Black Lives Matter banner. Society wrapped themselves around it. So now, when I tell you about when you have the power, you have to take advantage of it. I'm able to take another break in a minute. Okay. Yeah, we can wrap it up pretty soon. It had to I feel I feel like we at the point where we need to open the doors to the church right now. Like yeah. this is so powerful. I promise yeah. you. Hey, well, let, let me finish this point and then I'm gonna have to run to the party. But but what I'm saying is with humanity wrapped around them. They had, let's see, I always like to look at Dracula back in the 40s and the 50s. You know, Dracula used to have a cape on, right? And he always had a half moon in the back of his head, right? Mm. Well, that's what humanity was for Black Lives Matter. There was that, that halo in the back of their head. Where if, you, if, if the Black Lives Matter say, all right, we want to challenge the American system, we had the power and the strength where everyone on the planet came together under this auspices of Black Lives Matter. Now's the time they had the roundtable discussion. At the roundtable discussion, it was for us to request on the opposing side, we want to see the federal government over there. We want to see the Fortune 500 over there. We want to see the housing industry over there. Want to see the banking industry over there? Want to see the Board of Education over there? You understand? We want to see religion over there. You understand? Now, all of those agencies that I mentioned, and the medical as well, all of those agencies that I mentioned, some of them from Black Power or Black Lives Matter need to lean over the table and say to them, say, guys, listen. We're having this discussion here, not to say that you guys started racism and bias and prejudice, but what we feel is that you guys perpetuated bias, racism, and prejudice for the last 400 years. You threw logs on the fire. You didn't try and stop it. You didn't denounce it. You rolled with it for 400 years. And say, and the reason why we've come to this is for the simple reason that of this. I've learned here in America that if someone kills an individual, the first thing that they want you to do when you're caught is to do two things. What are the two things they want you to do? Tell. 
They want you to tell them that you did it first, right? And then they want you to show remorse for what you did. Well, when I got this roundtable meeting going on, this is exactly what those agencies that I mentioned, I want you to give me acknowledgement that you did this shit. And now that you acknowledge you did it, let me see your remorse for what you did. Now, if I get those two things, now we can go and start healing. Yes. We can go and start to try and make some significant change. But until we had that roundtable discussion, this shit gonna it's gonna die down just like after a while, Christmas is over. We into the spring and shit. After a while, spring is over, we into the fall. You understand? Until we have a serious round table discussion. Because right, every everybody doing their own little thing. You know what that's like? That's like a, a pack of firecrackers with 30 duds in it. Instead of them giving the pops, yips like that. Right. You understand? The government, how are you going to make change in the government and those agencies that has been your oppressors forever is not involved? And the biggest yeah. problem we have here on my side of the table, if I sat up and I said, man, all right, John, who would you prefer to have on our side of the table? I prefer to have Minister Farrakhan sit on our side of the table. I got to fight 50 and one people on my side of the table based on the fact that I chose Minister Farrakhan, not based on any belief or understanding or knowledge that they have about him, no more than what they were told by your oppressor about him. Mm. And you were arguing with me about why he shouldn't be representing us. Oh. You understand? How are we going to deal with this shit, man? We can't even deal with something as simple as who's representat- representing us. Let me run to the party. Y'all spill around on that for a minute. Okay. okay we'll wrap it up when we get back. You just, uh, you just started some shit, Earl. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to tell you. We're going to have to oh, break this one down into two parts. Two, maybe oh, even three. Oh, my goodness. I'm telling you. He done had me over here emotional. <laughs> and we can talk to him forever. Oh, my God. I'm going to talk to him. I, I, look, he can have a podcast just telling his own stories. Yes. He don't even have, he don't even need nobody else. No, it's amazing. It's he is an amazing person. Like just an amazing person. And it's like, let me look at look at this. I got two pages of notes. <laughs> Man, we just toss them on out. Right. <laughs> Man. I had I had it too. But I mean he's covered a lot of the stuff just everything, talking. everything that I wanted to talk about. The only thing that it, it don't even it's, it's like such a small part of it it's like so small like he covered everything yeah we'll wrap it up when because we already at two I, hours you mark. know what is his relationship with miss well, i hear him say mr smith so they must not be too close right now uh what about the other what's the other guy he it was a white guy from our, i think australia he's he's deceased now oh really yeah he was a white guy from, from yeah australia yeah. We'll wrap it up now. We can go on and on. All right. Man, I promise you this has been this is you are a great speaker. I really do hope that you do a podcast. Like you have to. Your story has to be you have to you can you can talk. I can tell you that. Much. <laughs> 
<laughs> I was just telling you, you can have one. You wouldn't even, a lot of times, you don't even need a guest. You can just sit there and tell your story. You have, yeah. you know. Nah, man, I need to have a guest because uh, my, my whole thing is, man, I'm just trying to pull the shades up in people's minds. You know, and you know, a lot of people think that I'll be running my mouth because I do talk a lot and I realize that. But at the same time, I realize, man, that I have so little time to put so much into that box. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And not only that, it's, 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 it's out in space so deep, man, the, the people I'm trying to reach. Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest problem that we have is that we don't have the fluency that, that the white folks had. Mm-hmm. When you were talking about a podcast, think about how long the radio industry been out there. Mm-hmm. Communication been out there. And this is the first time that we have an opportunity where we can be consistent to be able to run something to our brothers and sisters on a daily basis. Yes. Shit, they got a 200 year run on us. Yes. Yeah. You, you hey. I'm telling you, I have just listening to your life story and the things that I have read about you and the things that I have listened to about you and everything from the beginning of your life, you have had some kind of anointing on you to be a leader of the people. Like, I mean, just the way that you have handled things from the Robin Hood aspect, the changes that you made in your school when it came to them not being, you know, eating, uh, them not feeding us right from the things that you did in your projects when your mother um, (laughs) yeah, you set the trees on fire, like you have that, I'm giving you 48 hours like that was your your thing you have just been a remarkable person and you have always been a leader you have always been a person that has invoked change and demanded change and didn't take anything less so that is definitely a change is the word that comes to mind when when i think about you but but, like, but, but, but you know the sad part is that as, as much of a leader as he's always been i just feel like he never gets his just due for it well, you, you, you know something? Every black person in America should know your name. They know the picture, yes. but they don't yes. know the name like they should. Earl, Earl, let me just let me just say this, man. You remember the industry that I talked about that you guys are in? You talk about a guy like Brent Mersberger. Mm-hmm. Think about a guy such as myself, man. They don't want me to be up there to be able to articulate because I might be able to articulate on too many different levels that they can't block me from communicating to the people that I need to communicate to. So what they'll do, they'll block me in general. So we're going to just block him all together. We ain't going to let him get up. But how are we going to do it? We're going to get his people to block him. Mm. And that's why, you know, what I said with the program, with the podcast, I say, yeah, man, that's that's nice and be a nice way to make some money, this, that, and the other. But shit, I'm to the point, man, well, I'm tired now. <laughs> shit, I don't want to be obligated to do no show, you know, regular show and this and that. And 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 I have to take that into account. Right. You know, it, it gets to a point where you say, man, you know, I've been in this game a long time. And I've always thought it has to be some space for my wife 
my kids, my grandkids, where I can have some family time with them. And if it takes the last 10 years of my life to do that, then I'm willing to sacrifice society for that. Because the 90 years of my life, or potential time in my life, 90% of it was for society. So it's only fair that I take this last 10%, man, and apply it to those that I love dearest. Which is my wife and my kids. You know? So uh, even if you don't do something full-time, I mean, we only have, all of us have a certain amount of time on this earth. And you have such a, 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 a so much knowledge and, and wisdom to share with, with us all. Um, even if you don't do it all, we can just, if you want to come back and we have you here once a month or something, just get as much as we can, you know, because my the purpose of our podcast is to have positive conversations like this to educate our people more. Well, I'm gonna I'm give, give you something else to throw it out, throw out, okay? Now, I, I, I don't be trying to knock nobody's religion, I ain't trying to set nobody's religion back, but I just want to throw some things out there relative to religion for people to give some, some thought to. Because like I tell you, I get these moments that come from out of space, come to my brain, man, just like the vision years ago. I'm sitting in my house, just about three months now, upstairs in my chair again, and it came to my mind like a lightning bolt. And it said to me, he said, said, John, who's the most forgotten man in, this, in the uh, civil rights movement back in the slavery days? Who would you say it is? The most what? Most forgotten individual it, it come out of the era of slavery. What'd you think? Well, I don't know. Who would Nat Turner? No, you said it. You said it. You well, hit it on the him, but we had said mentioned <laughs> him earlier, but yeah. Well, did you ever did you ever did it ever dawn on you why he's the most forgotten? Because because of what he did, the, the revolt, you know, the, the that he led people to killing the white folks and fighting back and all of that. No, not not so much that. Not so much that. If you sit back and you think about, he wasn't just an organizer. He was a Christian. Okay? They got him and they gave him the Christian Bible and they told him all the verses, this, that, and the other, and he believed that. So when he came into the big house, man, he brought that Christianity with him. But then one day, something must have struck his fancy, his mind as well. And you know what it is? It's so simple, but yet and still it's so powerful. And you know what the thought that went through his mind was the same thought that went through my mind. You know what that is? How can me being the oppressed praying to my oppressor's God? <laughs> oh my goodness. I mean, I'm being oppressed. He's oppressing me, and we all both pray to the same God. Same God. Oh, okay. come on now, Mr. Carlo. Come on. Yeah, it had me think, well, we're praying and they're planning. We're praying and they're plotting. Understand? Mm. Because we've been praying, we shall overcome. We've been praying, set me free. 
For 553 years we've been praying this. Okay? And and I was talking about the snail earlier. This thing is a slug. He moving the slug in the snail relative to us waking up. And then you sit back and you think how well we were trained to the point where in 1975, if you went into a Baptist church and said, that guy on the cross, he ain't Jesus. He ain't the real God of this world. They'd have told you, get your black ass out of this church, Carlos, and don't you never come back ever again. Is this? Blasphemy. You talking about, that ain't God. What? what? Don't never let him come back across these path holes again. Okay? So what I'm saying is, when do we get a chance to look at something to us looking at this and figuring this out on, on our terms Understand? and not let anybody pressure you to eat their cereal? Understand? Think about it logically. Like I tell you, everything we do, man, is, is math equations. Right. We can figure this shit out if we just slow down long enough to do it. I mean, I say, man, I say, I say, I say, look here. When we left Africa, we left Africa like this. We remember, oh, they was putting us on the ships. Remember, man, we had a sun god that we prayed to. We had the water god that we prayed to. We had the mountain god and the river god we prayed to. You understand? We had the elk. We called him some kind of god. Right? But when all of those gods they said was not the real God, we was never in bondage as we became once they put Christianity on us. And he looked at you and told you, said, look, you see this? Let me read some of these verses to you. And then as they read it, he started leaning over on the sister and he started fondling her. Stick his hand all up on her dress and all kind of shit. And then he's still like, oh, see this picture? Now that's the real God. Look at him and look at me. Yes, my family. We're, we're kin. And what he's telling me what I'm doing with you guys is what I need to do for you. So now they get him on the ship. And remember, they didn't put us on the ship where they had the sails and shit flying us across. They didn't no more in the back. They had us with them damn oars. And they had a dude up there with the drum. Well, every time he hit the drum, we took a stroke. And every time we took a stroke, the guy was quoting from the Bible. That's how Nat came in to the camp. Christian. And then Nat figured out, said, how can I be praying to the same God? And people said, man, that's nonsense what you're saying. And I said to him, I'm sorry, well, let me ask you this question. Let's leave Nat alone. I said, when the KKK came to your house, I said, why didn't they burn a big K on your cross, on your lawn? Okay. No, why did they burn a cross on your lawn? You understand? I said, then let's leave that for a minute. Let's come up to modern day. I said, January 6, 2021, there's an insurrection at the Capitol. I say, there's two things I noticed in the Capitol that a lot of our people didn't notice or didn't want to notice or they act like they didn't notice. They said, what's that? I said, man, I saw in there a humongous 
rebel flag walking down right in the halls of the Capitol. Right next to that humongous rebel flag, I saw another flag said Jesus on it. Go look it up. It's in there. Walking side by side in the Capitol building. So I'm sitting back and I'm saying, wait a minute now. How can we be praying to the same God? It don't make sense. Every time they do something, they do it under the auspices of religion. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like, that's, like, that's like saying, you black bastards, I hate you black bastards. Oh, man, I don't know. I think it was the sugar I put in my coffee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you understand? Oh, they call you everything under the sun. You niggas ain't this. You niggas ain't that. Oh, man, my wife had the tub too hot for me last night. Hey, 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 I'm sorry. What do, you, what do you mean you sorry? You didn't said all this shit. Now you sorry? It ain't leaving my brain because you said you sorry. Right. See, but we accept it. We accept. You sorry? That's like them taking mega areas and 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 and, and, and the uh, the civil rights marches that they're doing the river down there in in, out in Mississippi. You remember they had the black kid, the Jewish kid, and they was registered for the vote. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now they let. The people that killed them, when they killed them, they was in their mid-20s. When they went and locked them people up, they was in their 90s. Right. So they let them go a whole lifetime. And then they go, go get them and then prosecute them and tell them, we got our men. We got them. We, we, saw, we, we, we ain't let them get away with it. Hmm. I said to myself, I said, man, I'm doing so all. They don't even know that you're putting them in jail. And they done lived a healthy and a fruitful life. And then you're going to tell me some shit about justice has been served and we're eating this shit up? I say, flip that. And then I tell them, I'm going to say this, and then I'm on the way out. If you sit back and you think about the narrative, how narratives have been changed. Let's go back to the modern day civil rights era. And they show you a portrait. They show you a portrait of a young brother standing there and you see a white cop, a sheriff, got a German Shepherd dog and the German Shepherd dog is lunging at the kid's gut. You seen that picture? Mm-hmm. Okay. There's another picture. You see uh, a cluster of black people standing on the corner and they look like they people around the corner and then you go back and see the wide picture. You see the white fire captain with the water holes on him. Okay? Or you see the one where they knock the black woman down and they drag her by her hair. Yep. Right? Well, all those was manipulated pictures. They were manipulated to let you think, oh, wasn't that bad? I'm mad, but I ain't that mad. Look at it, wasn't that bad? But let me show you what they really did. When they had that picture of the black folks standing there on the corner and they putting the water holes on them. Let me tell you what the real picture was. The real picture was when they took a black family, a mother, a father, and four kids, and they took the four kids one at a time and hung them in a tree and let the mother and the father and the other three kids watch the first one go. And then let them all watch each other all the way up to the father. 
to watch his family go and then to know he's gone. And then when they draw the camera back, you see they got three or four families up there. And then you draw the camera back farther and you see they all the white folks at a picnic. And you just surmise them saying, oh, cut his finger off. I want that. You know, cut his ear off. I want it to be a medallion on my neck. Give me his toe. Give me his genitals. Okay? That's one instant. Second instant is this. We had the brother there standing there with the dog. It was doing the dog reaching at his private parts. Well, that might have been, but the real deal was that they castrated the brothers back in the day. Then they would skin them alive and then tar and feather them. Understand? Then they sit back and take the other one. The one where they took the black woman and they knocked her down, they dragging her down the street. And, and he said, that's horrible. And I used to always think when I was a kid, how can he let the black man stand there and watch that shit? He ain't do nothing. That's like when I was talking to Connell West the other day, and I said, Connell, I said, man, I just applaud you because you had the balls enough to step up and say, what the hell was wrong with the people? Nobody went and attacked them damn cops. They knew they was killing that man. Well, the same way I used to feel about when a black man in the South stand there and watch a cop knock a black woman down and drag her by her head. He's standing there worried about he might get hurt. Okay? But the place of that black woman that they knock down and drag, imagine them taking that same black woman and tying her to a stake and then taking a rod, uh, iron rod and sticking it from her vagina until it came up to her mouth. These are real atrocities that they used to do to us. And they're they so real because they took pictures of this shit. Yeah. They was proud of that shit. See, and they changed the narrative on these pictures now because they know if the kids were to see this and adults would see this, this would be fixed in their minds to let them know, yeah, we have a moral right to win this moral fight that we're in. We're hoping that it don't have to get physical, but if it do, we ready for that. But right now, we can't even get ready for the moral fight that we're dealing with. Mm. Mm, mm, mm. I'll tell you, we've had a, this This has been a, a wonderful experience to be able to talk to you. And we, we had about two and a half hours down. So I don't want to keep you all. No, we down, man. And listen, just, uh, oh, just do me a favor, man. Make sure I get a copy. Oh, I definitely will. You'll have it. You'll have it real soon. And uh, I, your name a little different, but the symbol is the same. That's my father's name. Oh yeah, I heard you say that earlier. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, man, I, 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 this like I said, I've been when I first um, decided to do a podcast. I wanted you to be the first, one of the first ones. But again, the COVID stuff messed everything up. But this, it was well worth the wait to talk to you today and. And I hope it won't be the last. Um, and we'll definitely no, listen. Hmm? What you do? Uh, I don't know when you text me today. Text me your phone number. Okay, I will. Because I'm gonna talk to you about that podcast thing. Definitely. Uh, definitely. Yeah. Work yeah. something out. Yeah, yeah. We got your voice. We we need we need we need more people to hear your voice regularly, man. We really do. We really do. Yeah. Um, and again, I, I thank you. I, I sincerely thank you. Um, I'm like. Man, I'm I don't I'm like lost for words. Yeah, hey man, do me a favor. Do me a favor, Earl. Before I forget, man, when you talk back with Calvin's people, uh -huh. I know it's a year. You said a year, maybe two years late. 
Well, pass my condolences on to them, man. I will. I will. Please, let, me tell, let me tell you, when I told Gloria that I was going to be interviewing you, she she didn't even tell me. Uh, about a week later, um, I got a package in the mail, and she had mailed me your book. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she got the book a long time ago. Calvin got the book right. Yep, she mailed me your book, girl. So, and and, and, and when, um, when I do finally get to see you in person, I'm gonna bring it with, with you so you can sign it for me. Okay, okay. Yeah, but we'll definitely be in touch. Um, again, you know, uh, I'm gonna text you uh, my number again, and uh, we'll talk about that podcast. And again, I I, I thank you. Um, I, I, you know, that's all I can say. Thank you. And, and thank it was a pleasure you. meeting you, Mr. Carlos. Not only, not only. <laughs> Not only thank you for this interview, but thank you for your sacrifice for us. Hey man, let me tell you something. You say sacrifice, I say necessity. Mm. Okay, and you say sacrifice is if 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 uh, someone's coming to shoot you and should not jump in the, in in the way of the bullet. I'm sacrificing for you now. Mm. But in necessity is like. If we in the boat and it's a hole in the damn boat and I'm throwing water over a boat and shit, I ain't throwing water over the boat to save you. I'm saying throwing water over the boat to save us. It's necessitated that I get off my ass and do something, right? Right. Every man has got to work together to make this shit float. Exactly. You know, like I said, man, if we can get the link like they've had for all these years, mm -hmm. we can really resonate to our people. Oh, absolutely. No, even with all the podcasts that we have, man, they need to have a link of podcasts where we can exchange podcasts across this country. You understand? We, you got yours here in, in Atlanta, but most people in California don't even know you got it here in Atlanta. Right. You understand what I'm saying? So what I'm saying, we got to get to the point where we have these discussions and have various speakers on. We got to filter it out to more of our people. Rather than just the same people all the time, right? That, that make did that make sense with that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. We got to we got to gravitate more people because, like I said, the man had a tremendous amount of time to set the stage for us, man. When he controlled all the newspapers, he controlled all the magazines, all the radio, all the television, and if we get a chance to see each other, say once every six months to say what we got to say. How long is that gonna stick with us? Right. You know, the greatest thing we ever had relative to consistency for us was a DJ. Because hmm. he played our music for us every day. Yes. You know, and, and you sit back and say, if a guy couldn't, if he couldn't figure no history out, all he had to do was take history and put it in a damn record and let the DJ play that shit every day, and then he'd be the history whiz kid. Right? So all we need is consistency, man, to start pepping our kids' minds with this. But once they, things go, what I want you guys to work on with me down the line is I'm going to start a national sports venture to employ black and brown kids to go back to school with purpose this time. Understand? Mm -hmm. To let them know, say, man, it's required for you to go to school but i don't think why you understand what's the purpose of you going to school understand it's like i let him you earlier say yeah man you know 
if I got something in the sponge in my head, I can go anywhere on the planet and make it. But if I ain't got shit up here, where am I going to go? Nobody warned me. I ain't got nothing to bring to the table. But at the same time, where I get all the sports people to push these kids to go back to school, there's something for the sports figures they have to understand, too. Based on sportsmen and history, a lot of you guys had the basketball sense and the football sense and the baseball sense, but you ain't had no business sense. And you went and waited and gave all your money to the white folks, and they squandered your money away because we didn't have nobody black that we pushed through school to say, go get you an accountant there. Go get you an office management uh, uh, degree. Go get this degree. Get that degree so you could be the CEO of my corporation. We got to start tying this shit together. Yeah, let's do it. We're here to help anyway. And uh, like I said, I'll definitely be in touch. And I'm I'm here, whatever you need me to do, and, and let's do it. All right. Sound good. All right, All right guys. All right. Thanks, a lot. thanks again. And we'll be talking soon. All right. For sure. Thank, Thank you, Mr. Carlos. Right. Anytime. You guys have a blessed evening. You too. All right. Bye-bye. It's the Dear Black Folks Podcast.